Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. We're going to jump out of our normal series for one Sunday here, at least. And uh, so all I know about is Sunday to Sunday. And my heart has been directed to Luke chapter 18. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible in your hands. And then you get to not only hear the words of God from his book, but you'll be able to read them with your own eyes. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. And then he, that is Jesus, spoke a parable to them. And them refers to the disciples. That men always ought to pray or pray constantly and not lose heart. And this is the parable that he spoke. There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. But he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, Though I don't fear God or regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And then Jesus said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect, uh, his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this passage in your book. Thank you that this passage is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. We thank you for that kind of truth to build our lives on and our eternities on. And for these truths that you give us in your book in order to minister to our hearts and to conform us into the image of our Savior. We pray that you would use your Holy Spirit today through your word to speak to us and to continue that conforming process in our life. means the world to us to hear your voice, Lord. Nothing else really matters if we're not hearing your voice. We love to hear your voice, and we thank you for this always sure place to turn to for that, your word. Now help us to hear the voice of your spirit through your word. Give us that ability, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I believe the Lord has directed my heart very strongly to this passage this morning and and to this message. Jesus speaks a parable here, and it's a nice parable on a lot of levels, but one of the reasons it's a nice parable is that It's unmistakable in terms of what it's communicating. Some of the parables that Jesus spoke, it wasn't very easy for people to understand what he was saying. Um, They would misunderstand it or it took a little work to understand what 
the parable was saying, what he wasn't saying and what he was saying to sift through all of that. But in this parable, we don't have to try to figure it out. The lesson of it's given to us very directly. And the lesson of the parable being that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. The audience that Jesus is speaking to in this parable is referred to as them in verse 1. And we know from chapter 17, verse 22, that the them are the disciples. He's talking to his followers. He's talking to us. He's talking to Christians. And so the parable, that tells us that the parable doesn't apply to everyone in the whole wide world, but that it applies specifically to us as Christians And it's very important to understand the context in which Jesus delivers this particular parable to us as Christians. In chapter 17, verses 20 through 37, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about what would be the moral and the social and the spiritual condition of the world in the last days, the days that would immediately precede his second coming, and he is coming again. And the moral and the spiritual and social climate of the world that would immediately proceed as a result, the rapture, which occurs seven years before Jesus' second coming. And he tells us that the social and the moral condition of the world in what the Bible calls the last days will be as it was in the time of Noah. The time of Noah was a time of where the whole world, the Bible tells us, was just filled with wickedness. The world is filled with wickedness today. It was a time of widespread sexual immorality. It was a time of widespread unnatural sexual practices. It was a time where physical violence and bloodshed had become commonplace uh, in the world. It was a time when God's standard of right and wrong had been almost wiped out, had been completely turned upon its head until what God called evil was now being called good and what God called good was now being called evil. That was the time of Noah. And Jesus said that that would mark the last days of the world that we live in immediately before his return. Jesus further stated in that passage that the social and the moral condition of the world would be like it was at the time of Lot. And a lot of the same characteristics of the time of Noah marked the world at the time of Lot. But at the time of Lot, that was a time when the sin of homosexuality had become widespread in practice and and had become commonly uh, viewed as acceptable behavior. And the Bible goes on further to describe what the world is going to be like morally and Socially, in Second Timothy chapter three, and Paul wrote and said, "But know this: that in the last days, perilous times are going to come, for men will be lovers of themselves supremely, lovers of money, boasters, uh, trash talkers, proud, uh, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents." the breakdown of the family unit, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, that just do whatever their bodies tell them to do, that the capacity for self-control will have been lost with God's Word and the influence of the Spirit, 
They'll be brutal, despisers of good, traitors. Uh, Nobody's word will mean anything. Even a contract won't mean anything. Headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And yet they'll have a form of godliness, but they'll deny its power. And so in the last days, Jesus tells us that the world is going to be characterized by man's wholesale rejection of God's commandments and of his word, his definitions of right and wrong and good and bad and what is morality and what is immorality, the world will just sniff at it. They'll reject it completely, which will in turn result in the world beginning a a slide into degradation. And you look at the kind of lives that people are living today, and God never intended human beings to live like animals. We've been created in the image of God. We're to live above the level of animals and let, yet look at how increasingly the treatment of one person toward another person is becoming savage. It's becoming uh, brutal. Uh, if we keep our eyes on the world around us, I just one of the things that's of concern to me is what's going to happen when some needed resource, even within the kind of the culture and sophistication and civilized living, so to speak, of the United States of America. I'm afraid that things have gotten to the place that if some necessity becomes finite, that this people are just going to become savages because this is what the culture is nurturing and what people now do to one another, which would have been unthinkable not too long ago. Now people readily do to one another. So you walk away from God and you reject God, and then you do more than that. You you take his definitions and you say, not only do I spit on those definitions, but we're going to indoctrinate a whole country and a whole world to believe that the very opposite of what you say is true, well, you're going to pay the piper for that. And it's going to end up in a very degraded society where by the week and by the day you're going to read in your newspapers or hear about friends or hear about this or that, people doing things that will just shock you. And they do shock us even today. Say, how have we come to this? How can people do that? How can that happen? And that's what happens when you turn away from God's Word. You've got a video that we just watched of a father in Nigeria, now home in heaven. And he tells his children, read the Bible and obey God and walk with God and know God. That's a father who speaks that from the context of Nigeria, where the margins are very, very fine, where a father knows there's no other place for hope, there's no other place for anyone to turn to, to live a decent life and to be prospered in this life, to say nothing of the life to come. And so he points his children to God. He understands what's, what's found there and he understands what's, 
what's valuable, and he understands in the culture around him of what people become when they reject what God has to say. And we're becoming that very, very rapidly. And I don't know that we're any better than Nigeria on some some levels. So you end up with a degraded society, and you end up with a, a world that is unraveling. When Paul spoke about in the last days the world would be perilous times, he talks about fierce times. He talks about problems occurring in the world in which there is no way out. Man will make, will make so many decisions that will be so disastrous that only the return of Jesus, that will be the only hope for the world that we live in. And yet in the times of Noah and at the times of Lot, when all of this was going on, people were living like animals. Society was living in such a degraded state and and in such a condition of unraveling. What was the reaction of society as a whole? The reaction was a collective yawn. And Jesus said, in the last days, things will unravel. People will become like animals. It will become degraded. And what will be the response of the world to all of this? Alarm? Sackcloth and ashes? Repentance? No. These are the things that a thinking people would do. People still with a conscience that isn't seared. He said, in the last days, these things are going to occur and the world is going to respond to this unraveling of things with a collective yawn. All they're going to be thinking about, their thoughts completely set on their next meal and the next wedding they're going to attend. That is the next special event in their life, the next business deal, the next material thing that they're going to buy and living as if God isn't watching all of this and as as if we're not going to answer to him one day. Complete indifference to sin. Even though the casualties to man's decisions and the casualties of, of people engaging in sin and the price that they're paying for the rejection of God and of his word, you can take the casualties and pile them up in stacks of human beings and the tens of thousands and the hundreds of thousands and the tens of millions in our own country to say nothing of the rest of the world and yet unflinching in continuing to engage, demanding to engage in sin and in rebellion against God no matter what the consequence to society, to the world, or to individual human beings. Try and imagine such a world, and I don't think there's any need for us to try and imagine it. It's the world that we live in. Everything as I read the Word of God, and I know a little bit about the Bible after 33 years. I've studied it from day one. And everything I read about what the Bible has to say about the last days, it is in front of my eyes in spades every day. In relationships with people, the city that I live in, and the newscasts that I watch, the fulfillment of it 
on a geopolitical level, on a social level, on a moral level, on a material level, on a government level, on any level you want to look at, what God said would mark the last days immediately before the rapture of the church and then ultimately Jesus' second coming, it is all there fully fulfilled before our eyes. I don't know when the Lord is going to come back, but all it needs to do is just to continue to develop. And one of the things that alarms me and that really breaks my heart is one of the fads today in Christianity is very strong among younger pastors, but it's not limited to them. Or I should say newer churches that are being started. The younger generation is the generation that is doing most of that. Is There's a deliberate move away from eschatology, the study of the last days, There is is a deliberate, orchestrated, purposeful moving away from speaking about what the Bible has to say to Christians about what will mark the world in the last days and what we need to do and what we need to become in order to stand in that world. Because it requires sobriety. It requires seriousness. It requires a depth of spirituality and Christian Christian character. And today, more and more, everything's got to be a feel-good. The church service has got to be a pep rally. I'm all for a church service being an event. We need a spiritual event, but it's got to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. I understand that people have enough problems in their life on a daily basis without coming into sometimes into a church service and hearing that, hey, things might get a little bit harder than even what we know today for us as Christians and that God might have chosen us to be the generation that will do that and see that. It's not just all about having the privilege of hearing that trump and going up in the rapture but that there might be some responsibility required of a generation that has the privilege of being a part of that. And the Bible speaks of the fact that when things are going to get so difficult in the world that the news of the rapture of the church, that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to remove us before he pours out his judgment upon this world, that it is going to be the only hope that we're going to hold in our hearts, because that's where the that's where the world is is going. And so this move away from talking about this because it's not a happy subject, it's not a perky subject. But I think about in the Old Testament, one of the prophets spoke of the fact that they demanded of their prophets, they demanded of their seers, they demanded of their priests a happy message. They didn't want to hear the hard news that God was calling them to be a certain thing and do a certain thing and take him seriously. And the Lord spoke to the prophet to his own people, not to the world. He said, but what will you do in the end? The future is coming. Nobody's going to change that. Ignoring it won't change that. Ignoring it won't do any good. As Christians, we're to be equipped for the age in which we live. And there's a whole world of Christians that are not being equipped for the seriousness and the needs of the age in which God has given us the privilege of representing Him. 
And Jesus tells us that as in the last days, the world's not going to be an easy place to be a follower of Jesus. It's not going to be an easy moral or spiritual environment that we're going to be forced to live in in order to follow the Lord. And it's one thing to read the Scriptures and to read about what it has to say about the last days and this subject and that subject and read a passage like we're reading here today or the Olivet Discourse or whatever it might be and then to see them just as words upon a printed page and we sit here so often in the United States of America historically but that bubble is disappearing by the day and to think concerning what's described in the Word of God that's a far, that's a way away from, far away from our day. I'll never live to see the world that's described in the scriptures. That's something that another generation, and maybe the generation after them, they'll have to face what I, but I won't have to face it. I would have believed it 20 years ago. I would have never believed that the world that we live in would have the moral and the spiritual and climate that it has today, that it will have fought it, that it has fallen as far as it has as quickly as it has. And I don't think I'm the only person in this room that read the Bible and thought, hey, this is going to be way out there. We're safely beyond the reach of that. I won't need the character to withstand that. And then one day we wake up and month becomes year and year becomes a decade and then pretty soon we turn around and we're right in the middle of what the Scriptures say. Things we thought would be two generations out. It's our portion now. And we realize... I've got to have a character to stand for Christ. I've got to have a character, something built into my life from God in order to survive the current climate, let alone become a difference maker for the Lord in the last days, if that's indeed the days that we're living in, and I think it is. So it's one thing to read these things on the printed page of the Bible about what the world's going to become, and then it's altogether something else when this becomes the actual moral and spiritual condition of the world that we live in. And we realize, no, that isn't in the future. That's right now. That's the world that I'm living in. When as Christians we're forced to watch a world grow needlessly more sinful and more wicked and more unstable as a result and for it to happen as quick as it's happening. Somebody say, I've heard this all before. That's okay. I'm going to say it again. This is talk about the generation gap. The kind of changes that are happening by the year in the world that we live in today used to take a generation to occur. You say, well, this generation, and then there was a generation gap, and the next generation, and this generation couldn't understand this generation because of this time span of 20 years or whatever it might be between the one generation. And it took those kind of gaps for the, for significant change to occur for one generation not to understand the world that another generation had been born into. Generations forget about generations, schmenerations. What took generations now is happening by the year and by the month 
in the world that we live in today. And one of the things that can happen to us as Christians in a world like that is that it can become overwhelming. And we can begin to lose heart in the midst of it. And Jesus knows it. And that's why he spoke that par- this parable. And he recognized that these things would tend for this generation, for any Christian, but this generation, we are in a generation that is, uh, this generation is closer to the return of Jesus Christ and the, re- the rapture of the church than any generation in church history. See, it's an obvious thing to state, but it's something to think about. This parable is supposed to mean more to us than it's meant to any other generation of Christians. And so Jesus recognized and he tells us that in the last days, things are going to get in a certain way that's going to cause even us as his disciples to lose heart. And when it talks about losing heart in verse 1, the word means in the original language to become discouraged, to become exhausted, to despair, to give up. And it's true, isn't it? Very, very easy to lose heart today. To speak to so many Christians. They're just giving up. I give up. My ministry, what difference am I making? It's like trying to drain the ocean with a thimble. What does it matter if I'm faithful or not to what it is that God has called me to? Here's why it's important. Because God could bring revival tomorrow and turn the whole thing around. That's what I'm praying for. It's the only hope. But people are overwhelmed. It's so big. It's so systemic. It's so institutionalized. It's so one world. How can I make any difference in terms of the flow of the world? And we lose heart and we become discouraged in the middle of it. And then we're just tempted uh, to give up. And the reason is, is because we feel that way is because it takes a lot out of us to be a Christian in this world and to go against the flow of the stream of the world culturally and morally. You ever go out into a stream where the water is flowing and the culture is flowing in the exact opposite direction of where God has called us to go, to move forward in, So that means we've got to get out on the river and we've got to make progress in a certain direction and we've got to do that against the flow. If you've ever been in a creek or you've ever been in a river, put some waders on or whatever, and you start to try and go against that flow, you realize this has taken a toll on me, physical toll. When I was a kid, you'd get in the pool, you know, and it would be a round pool and everybody would go in one direction, get the water all going as fast as you can, and then somebody would give the signal and then we'd go in the other direction. And it would take a little while to get that water turned back around the other direction and all. And that's what we're called to do and we're called to be as Christians. But it takes a lot out of you to do that. Physically in a physical stream, but against the moral, spiritual stream of this world, it takes a lot out of us emotionally and mentally, and spiritually, and physically. And every single Christian who is living the life and is walking the talk, 
you know there's a price that's being paid to do that. Think about parents. We raise our children for 18 years. And then they head out. And we think, all right, the hardest part of being a parent is over. Nobody told us that was the easy part. Sometimes the kids are raised in the things of the Lord. They don't know what true blessings are, what true treasure is. And they throw it away for nothing in the world. But because you're serious in your relationship with the Lord, you make a stand. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And then Thanksgiving comes and Christmas comes. And she wants to bring the guy that she's living with who doesn't think enough of her or you to marry her. And they want to spend the night in one of the bedrooms of your house. And you say, no, I can't do that. Not in my house, not in my relationship with the Lord. I love him too much and I love you too much to do that now. And then the child's offended, makes it known to the whole family. And then pretty soon you're the person out here that's the bad guy. And then the price that is paid emotionally and mentally and physically for making that stand of going against the stream of the world. You recognize it. You understand it. The spiritual price that's paid in order to do that. And you can figure out your own illustrations for how that fits everywhere you make a stand. And more and more it's so, and more and more it's going to be so, where we make a stand related to the Word of God. There's going to be a price to pay for that. It's just the way that it is. And in the last days, the stronger this flow gets in the opposite direction of where God has called us to go, the greater the toll it's going to take on us to go in that opposite direction and to resist that flow. I think another reason that we can lose heart is we watch the world making one bad decision after another. We watch individuals making one bad decision after another, one ungodly decision after another and think to ourselves can't you see where this leads can't you see where that what's going to happen with that anybody can see where where that decision is going to lead one of the blessings of being a christian is having opened eyes one of the curses of being a christian and the fallenness of this world before we get to heaven is having opened eyes where we can see things way before they're going to happen because of what we know from the Word of God and what we know from the Holy Spirit inside of us. 
and you watch the news, or you talk in this conversation or in this situation, and you see the decision that's being made, and you think to yourself, can't you see where that leads? Can't you see that that's going to make everybody feel good for about six months, and then there's going to be a bomb that's going to go off and create all kinds of casualties? And we see things so clear as Christians. We see things more clearly than Anyone with a Ph.D. sees things, or multiple Ph.D.s. The simplest Christian who knows their Bible and is filled with the Holy Spirit sees and understands this world more clearly than the President of the United States if that President isn't saved or the president of a college or a university, I don't care how many degrees they have, how much learning or their capacity to learn. And one of the hard things is for us to look, have the eyes of Christ, the mind of Christ, and to be able to see things as clear as we see things. I think that you've got to not only have in the world today a situation where you've got the world redefining what God calls good to be evil and what God calls evil to be good, but they're redefining who is sane as unsane and who is insane as sane. You take anybody... You you talk about the medicating of the United States of America, and I'm not talking about you and your doctor, and I'm not laying a guilt trip on anybody. I understand but we talk about the crisis of this. We talk about these uh, help centers that people are checking themselves into, it, the, how busy psychiatrists and psychologists are within our culture, and nobody stops and asks them to say, why this explosion? Why this epidemic? Is it speaking about how unhealthy or how impossible the world that we have created is for a sane human being to exist in. We are breaking people. We are breaking people. And you get somebody who comes in, and I think that, you, to me, the whole thing is backwards. you got somebody that comes in, and, and they look at the world that everybody else is looking at, and they just keep passing their laws and eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow we die. And this person over here, even before they become a Christian, just because of God, how God has made them, they see the implications of everything. And so they check themselves into the state hospital. They check themselves in for some kind of psychiatric help and all, they get labeled insane while the world is sane. They may be the only sane people in the world among the lost. And one of the things that happens for us as Christians is we see things clearly. And because God has given us that kind of clarity of vision and understanding, you can lose heart. Because the world that we live in and people that don't know the Lord, most of them, when the shoe drops, they get surprised that hour. They never saw it coming. They never thought it could come. They never agonized over it. 
They never thought there was a possibility of it. And that you here you are, you know the Bible, the Holy Spirit is in you. He's grieved inside of us, related to where the whole world is going. And you've seen it coming for years and for months and for weeks. You pay a price for that. We need to be that. We don't want God to change that about our lives. But to be able to see the way we see and understand the way that we understand, you can lose heart. Because you're going to pay a price emotionally and mentally and physically and spiritually. But it makes us stronger spiritually. And Jesus is telling us that the world is not an easy place to follow him in. And in the last days, it's going to be harder still. And I think the nice thing about the passage is that it's one of the things that Jesus is communicating is that he understands that. And because he understands that, he gives us a very significant key in the passage to not losing heart as his disciples in this age. And so what's the alternative to losing heart? What's the safeguard? What's the protection? Prayer. Prayer. As simple as that. And prayer is one of the simplest things in the whole world. It just means to talk with God. And I have the ability to talk with God as a disciple, as a Christian, because Jesus has given us access to come boldly before that throne of grace, to receive the mercy and grace that we have need of in our time of need. There's so many books that are written on prayer, all of them good probably. I've read a couple dozen of them. (laughs) Because of the way that I think, and I don't think there's anything wrong with the books that I read, probably something wrong with me. But they made prayer so complicated and such a formula that you kind of just give up on it. And all prayer is, is just a child talking to his Heavenly Father the way you talk to anyone. You don't have to have some kind of a prayer voice or a prayer cadence or something like that. Your voice doesn't have to up and down. mm -hmm. I mean, if that's you, then do it. But if that's not you, then you don't have to do it. It's just talking to God. And the spiritual moral condition of the world in the last days Jesus is saying is going to require more prayer and regular prayer and even constant conversation with God in order to keep from losing heart.
I think that one of the needs, reasons we'll need to pray in a greater measure in the last days is in order to maintain a biblical perspective, a heavenly perspective in the midst of the world that we live in. Sometimes circumstances in life can become so great that you just need a friend to talk to. Some trials become so big they're disorienting. There are certain trials that we experience and we get through them and they took us to 50% of our margin or to 60% of our margin or to 80% of our margin and we navigated them and we go on about our business. And then there's those trials that take us up to 98% and 99% and 100% and then 110%. God, don't you know what my margins are? Don't you know that I can't take this? And there are those trials that occur in our life. The circumstances of life become such that the difficulty is so great that it's disorienting. You don't trust your judgment anymore. You don't trust your ability to see anything clearly, to make decisions in it. And in those kind of circumstances, you need somebody to talk to who's outside of the circumstance that can help you to see things clearly. And God is always that person. Sometimes you'll never find that in another person, a human being. We love it in another human being. But sometimes things get and things are going to get in the last days where only he is going to understand. There are circumstances that happen in life where they are so big and they are so disorienting that you think about even the people that you know and you love and are deeply spiritual and you think to yourself, how can I ever communicate this to them so they can speak into my life? Because I don't know that I can even put it into words and speak it to them. And even if I could put it into words, how in the world could they understand? And so it will be fruitless. It will be useless. But that never occurs with God. We can always go to Him and talk with Him. He always understands. He always knows. He always can get track with us fully. He always knows what to say. He's always all wise. He's always filled with grace and encouragement. He has all of those things. And one of the things that we'll need to pray more and more as time goes on is to be able to maintain perspective, an eternal perspective in the world And things will become so difficult in this world that only he'll be able to help us to do that, as wonderful as our friends are. Prayer also produces courage and faith that we need. So it's a wonderful thing that happens when we talk with God 
And as we pray to God that there's somewhere in the course of talking with him, whether it's in 30 seconds or in five minutes or in 10 minutes or half an hour, but somewhere in here we begin to realize that's right. I'm not in this situation alone. I'm not in this world alone. I'm not trying to do this on my own. Me getting into heaven one day and receiving a well done and a crown isn't dependent upon me. I have a friend in this. I have a helper, and God is my helper in all of this. As David wrote, I'll lift my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And prayer gets our eyes off of the circumstances to above the circumstances to God and to realize I have a God who is on my side and involved in this situation who is greater than my circumstances. And prayer becomes the lifter of my head. And prayer also restores peace and quiet to our hearts in a world that is not peaceful and quiet. Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said, be anxious for nothing but in prayer. Everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Pray to God about everything. Lift up your needs to God. Talk with God about everything. Praise Him. Give Him thanks. Use every form of prayer in speaking to God. And then he said, as a result, and the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, will set itself up as a guard around your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Sometimes people ask, how long should my prayer time be? And there's no set answer for that because no, no day is the same. But Paul wrote and said that what God wants to do through prayer is he wants us to offload the things that are making us anxious and causing us to lose heart, to offload those things onto his shoulders, casting all our cares on him because he cares for us, offload those things onto his shoulders, and then receive his peace in exchange. That's a wonderful exchange that happens with prayer. It's a key to not losing heart. And so how long does a prayer time need to be on a particular day until that exchange occurs? And if that exchange occurs in X amount of minutes on one day, but it takes twice as many minutes to occur the next day, then that's the time that it needs so that we don't lose heart. I think it's important for us to notice in verse 7 that this parable is intended to protect us from the temptation of thinking that our prayers aren't doing any good simply because they're not changing the direction of the world or the increasing ungodliness of the world. Because if we begin to think that, then the next step is to think that ought to just stop praying altogether. And so often we think of prayer. I'm lifting this up to you, God. I'm not seeing an answer in the physical realm. I'm not seeing a change yet. I'm wasting my time in prayer. And that's seeing prayer on a one-dimensional level. The old saying is that prayer changes things, and it always does. But sometimes it changes us before it ever changes our circumstance. Because sometimes we think our greatest need is for the circumstance to change, and God knows the greatest need is for something to change inside of us. 
And so when we pray about a given situation, especially in the last days, as we look at things becoming more and more difficult, more and more wicked, more and more evil, and we don't see God answering, He will answer that prayer. And it's called the second coming of Christ. But we think, my prayer is ineffective. It's not making any dent in the world all around me. But don't forget about the impact that it's having upon you. You need to pray. You need to lift those things up to the Lord. I need to lift those things up to the Lord. So prayer isn't just about changing the circumstance. It does something important inside of us and something that will become even more important to us as the return of Jesus Christ draws closer. It changes something inside of us. Jesus instructs, us here that every temptation to lose heart, every temptation to despair and give up on our fight against the stream of ungodliness in the world, that it must be met with prayer. And if we don't meet it with prayer, that we are going to lose heart. Jesus is just saying we're going to have to talk a lot and we're going to have to talk a lot more often. And believe it or not, when, where things are going to ultimately go at the end of the age, if you're going to be the generation that has the privilege of seeing the rapture, our conversation is going to need to be constant. Otherwise, you're going to lose heart. The parable itself reveals to us the nature and the heart of the God that we pray to, and that's important to Jesus. There's only two characters in the parable. There's a widow and there's a judge. And the widow in the cult, that culture, a woman who is a widow, that's, that is, she was the symbol of powerlessness and vulnerability. Today we've got Social Security, we've got pensions, we've got different things. When the husband dies and all, there's a safety net and all. In those days there wasn't a safety net beyond the family. And if the family didn't have resources, you were on your own. So she's the picture of vulnerability and powerlessness. And in this she represents us as Christians in the world, especially in the last days. So that's the physical condition of many Christians in the world today in the face of its ungodliness. They're vulnerable and they appear to be, appear to be vulnerable and powerless. And she's had a wrong that's been done against her and she wants that wrong to be made right. And she goes to the judge and his characteristics are he doesn't fear God. He doesn't have a respect for people. He doesn't, uh, he's heartless toward people. So, even in the natural realm, if a very powerful and influential man came before this judge, he would have had a almost impossible time influencing this judge in any way. And yet, ultimately, the persistence of her prayers prevails over the judge, and he grants her request. And he gives the reason there in verse 5. He said, yet because the widow troubles me, I'll avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the word weary means literally to give a black eye. This woman is beating me black and blue with her requests. She never stops coming to me with the same request that she'd be delivered of her adversary, beaten back black and blue by her prayers. Now, the moral of the story is not that God, the God that we pray to is 
like this judge, that if you pester him enough, you can wear him out, just like mom and dad, and then he'll give you what you want. The point is, is that the Lord is nothing at all like this judge. And the point that Jesus is making is that if a woman will persevere in a court case with virtually no hope of success, then how much more should we persevere in our prayers for justice in the light of how loving and how caring and how gracious our God is? Jesus closes all of it with his applications by declaring in verses 7 and 8, God will be faithful to avenge his people for the persecution they experience for righteousness' sake. That prayer that we pray on a daily basis, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that prayer is going to be answered. That's a given. That's not in question. What is in question at the end of verse 8, Jesus declared, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he really find people who are persevering and looking for his return? And nobody can answer that for anybody else. I can't answer it for you. You can't answer it for me. But Jesus has wonderfully told us in this parable that a key for sustained faith and holy living in the moral climate of the last days, a key to that is going to be prayer, confident prayer, ongoing, constant prayer directed to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit didn't put this parable in the Bible so that people like me could preach on it on Sundays. He's telling every one of us as Christians in this room, things are going to come to a place where you are going to need to talk to me constantly in order to maintain perspective. And the environment that I have chosen you to live in for my glory, otherwise you're going to lose heart. And there's no middle ground. And that's the message I want to bring to you today. We will either grow in our prayer life as a Christian with the Lord in this day in human history or we will lose heart. And there's nothing in between the two. And so Jesus speaks to us about the world is going to become such that we're either going to pray or we are going to lose heart. And Jesus is telling us that a prayer life is not an option but a necessity for each of us as Christians. And what he's speaking to us as a church and a pastoral staff, and I think by His Holy Spirit to you as well in the privacy of your own relationship with the Lord, is it the prayer life we had six years ago with the Lord and six months ago with the Lord? It won't be enough for today. 
Because the world is changing too fast in the wrong ways. And so it will require that our prayer life accelerate, increase to the point of constancy with God in order to not lose heart in this hour in human history. Because the world is changing so fast, we must adapt our prayer life as well. There's a book that I'd like every single one person that attends this church to read. It's by Guy King. It's called Prayer Secrets. I made the announcement for a service, and we sold every copy that we had. They're $5. That's a, a dollar under the cost. $5. This is the best book of its kind I've ever read on prayer. Not intimidating at all, practical as practical can be, and will enrich anyone who already has a prayer life and will get somebody going that doesn't have a prayer life without getting you to overthink and complicate it. It's a fabulous book. The table will be out in the fellowship hall after the service. You can go there and buy it today for $5. They'll give you a stub for it. We will order copies immediately tomorrow morning and hope to have them then in the bookstore for you to pick up in the next week or two. And But after today, there's a $5 prices for today. After that, it will go to retail, $8 in there, for the simple reason that we're not trying to make money, but to mess with the whole administrative system of the bookstore and all of that is a headache. So, all right, so we don't do that. Even as a senior pastor, I don't do that. And so pick it up and and read the book. And if you are here today and you say, you know what? Five bucks might as well be a million bucks to me. I can't afford it today. You just talk to one of the men or women at that table and they'll get you situated. We just want everybody to own the book and to read the book. On Sunday night, we're going to change our Sunday evening prayer um, meeting. that goes from 515 to 545. We're going to change all of that. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But tonight, I'm going to change things in our evening service. And what I want to do tonight, instead of having our regular Bible study, is I'm calling for an all-church prayer meeting in the place of our regular evening service. Just tonight won't be ongoing to pray for one another, pray for this church, and to pray for one another in a specific realm, in the realm of spiritual warfare. And if you consider this to be your home church and you care about this church and the health of this church and the health of saints that attend this church... I want you to be here tonight. We'll start at 6 o'clock, promptly at 6 o'clock. Got a lot of ground we want to cover tonight in meeting together for prayer. But if if this is your attitude toward this church, both morning and evening, both the morning services, I want you to come back this evening and let's spend some time in prayer for us as a fellowship and then individually as well. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Father, thank you for your 
your word. And thank you that you speak to us in a way that nobody else will speak to us. Lord, as human beings, even as pastors, even the best of pastors, so many things come into our minds, so much complication and so much manipulation and figuring and all of this stuff. And you love us enough to just tell us the truth and then to bear witness to that truth in our hearts. And we acknowledge, Lord, that we sense that you are speaking to us individually as Christians and to us as a church to go to a place in prayer that we've never been before because the world has never been what it is today. And we invite you and we beseech you to take us, Lord, to that place. You define this church. You define our relationship with you and what it means to be a Christian. We've had enough of our own definitions, fashioning our own Christianity or allowing them to be fashioned by others, Lord, who don't tell us the whole truth. We want you to fashion our Christian life, the one that you know that we need, the one that you sent your son to die to provide to us. And Lord, we pray specifically in this area of prayer that you take us into that place that you know that we need to be, not only for the survival of Calvary Chapel of Modesto, but to be a great spiritual influence, a needed influence in the world all around us, both saved and unsaved. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.